Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors, a podcast in which I continue a conversation begun by children's television icon Fred Rogers in my PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me. Each week, I talk with friends and neighbors about how they're endeavoring towards depth and simplicity, despite an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, country music journalist Allison Bonagiro. There was a minute there at the end of my tenure with The Mighty Viacom when I was leading editorial across MTV, VH1, and country music television. I flew back and forth between Nashville and New York City maybe a dozen times. This was just as Nashville was beginning to boom, but before it was welcoming new residents at the rate of one per hour. There were signs though. Jack White had just moved in. New one-word restaurants with bold named chefs were opening and the first vintage shops were popping up in East Nashville. Still, it wasn't the Hollywood of the Southeast or Las Vegas of the South, yet. Allison, then a CMT journalist, was always open and always game. She'd turn out the CMA and Grammy red carpets dressed to the nines, reporter's notebook at the ready, always filing first. So when I heard that she'd penned a behind-the-scenes book about her time in country music, I couldn't wait to read it. What makes backstage so interesting to me, anyway, is how important these small, personal moments figure into Allison's Nashville experience. Sure, there are outsized NC-17 excesses, see also Kid Rock, but mostly Allison talks about things like the time Tim McGraw asked about her kids or Blake Shelton sent her a thank you note. The small, personal moments. Take me to Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, mid-80s. Like, what is your world? All Motown. Diana Ross and the Supremes, the Four Tops, the Spinners. We would have dance parties in my friend's basement. Very wholesome Motown fun. A lot of Jackson 5, Yeah. And what were your earliest exposures? Was it playing in the house? Were friends introducing you stuff? Siblings? We had the gigantic TV console where the record player was, like, down in it. Most... Top 40 stations in Detroit played Motown and we would sit there with a cassette player and just push play and record the minute the song that we like came on because we didn't have money to go buy music. Yeah. I mean, we'd have to earn money, ride our bikes to the record store. Totally. Buy the 45. What was the local store? Would you remember? Harmony House. Did you develop relationships and it'd be like, check out this new blank or was it not quite that almost famous-ish? Me and my friends would ride our bikes there so that we could buy the 45 of whatever the single was at the time, like Michael Jackson had off the wall. Yeah. Or the Jackson 5 Ben. You know, you would go, you'd ride your bike there, split it, split the cost of the 45, never, ever listen to the B-side. What kind of role did music play for you? Like, what, what did it ignite? What did you do around it? How did you think about it? I associated music with socializing. So it was what we did At night, we would have these dance parties in people's basements. It's what me and my boyfriend would listen to sitting out on his back porch. It was all part of growing up. And what was happening in Detroit in your experience as a teenager? My whole family worked, as you can imagine, in the auto industry. So we were a big General Motors family and my grandfather ran Cadillac. So that was all we were really allowed to drive. So that was what my parents had. So I won't name names, but there are still people in our family who... If you don't drive a Cadillac, you're kind of shunned. When did you 
gather or ascertain that you had a way with words that you could write? I don't think anybody ever congratulated me for yeah. it. It's just that it came easy. You know, when, other, when yeah. my friends would be struggling with like, how do you even start this book report? I'm like, I don't know. It just, it just came out. I guess it must've been in high school that I was like, I'm a writer. Really the journalism classes that I had in college were the only ones I did well in. Were you encouraged to do whatever the heck you wanted? You know, I was the youngest of six kids. So by the time my mom was driving me to Milwaukee, I think she was like, Good you do you. Love you. Yeah. And at the time that I was leaving for college, I didn't have a dad. My parents were divorced and I thought of her as my mother and my father. Mm. So there was never any like, you know, well, she wants to be a journalist, but I think she should be a dental hygienist. There was none of that yeah, yeah, conflict yeah, yeah. that some families have. I knew what I didn't want to be. I didn't ever want to be a straight news reporter. I certainly didn't want to be an investigative journalist. So I ended up trying to find a career where I could be a writer that was clever and have a way with words and have that be an appreciated gift. So I was an ad agency copywriter for 15 years. Yeah. That was so much fun because people are constantly celebrating a tagline that you've written, a radio commercial that you've written. And you're like, I am good. And I imagine the pace of expectation around productivity was different. A tagline has to be a process of like brainstorming, ideating around numerous ideas over some amount of time and then winnowing down to some degree. Whereas like a concert review, you're just banging that sucker out on the bathroom floor, right? Yeah. (laughs) I worked on Gerber Baby Food and I was always pregnant. I was always nursing. I was always giving birth. Like I it was part of my life, yeah. you know, both my personal life and my career. So I would have these middle of the night epiphanies. I woke up one night, like comforting my youngest daughter, who is now 26. And I was like, God, she needs me so much and yeah. I need somebody. So I jotted down, your baby has you and you have Gerber. Mm. And I mean, it was just like gangbusters from there. We went into a recording studio. We hired a jingle writer. Those were just some of my fondest memories of having my way with words pay off and not be something that I did as a side hustle. It was like literally my job. Yeah, front and center. And I loved it. When the kids are little and stuff, you don't have a lot of discretionary income, but I won tickets to a Tim McGraw concert in 2003 and I won a chance to meet him. I went there and I was like, oh my God, I need to work in the country music business. Could I be a bus driver? Could I be a guitar tech? I can't play an instrument. So I was like, how can I get a job in this business and and make a living out of this? Again, middle of the night epiphany, I was like, I could write about it. I'm a good writer. It took years before I went from meeting Tim McGraw to getting an assignment that I was paid money for from the Chicago Tribune. I was at work at the ad agency and he said, can you cover Keith Urban's show tonight? And I was like, totally. And I had (laughs) no idea what to even do. And he's like, your deadline is 2 a.m. tomorrow morning and just filed like three or 400 words. And I'm like, okay, got it. And, you know, that was it. That was around 2005. And, you know, I've been doing it ever since. On the Tim McGraw flyaway. What part of the experience really catalyzed you to be like, oh, this is special and different and I moved to action in a new way? I had been loving country music since 
the 90s. I had no industry knowledge. All I knew was that I loved the songs. So when I went backstage and saw the roadies, the crew, all the people kind of like navigating where Tim was and where Tim shouldn't be. And, you know, I was like, God, this is a business. Like it just never occurred to me that there was a business to the music business. Yeah. And so that's why I thought there's got to be an opportunity for me here to do something. What was your experience that night with Tim? I know you had a tender, thoughtful, brief exchanges, which I think are kind of what make up our lives. I told everyone, my family, my friends, my extended family, just everyone who would listen. I was like, I have a backstage pass to meet Tim McGraw and I might not be home tonight. (laughs) So, like, I thought he and I were going to sit down and just become best friends. And obviously that doesn't happen. You're with him for all of like three seconds. I got the picture and I was like, well, now I have this tangible evidence that there are things going on behind the scenes. It wasn't until about 2005 when I completely left my job because it was too much to go into the city to do my job, then go to these concerts at night. Yeah, It is the most thankless work. The Chicago Tribune paid me $150, 40 of which went towards parking a premium easy out spot, which was necessary because when 20,000 drunk music fans leave a show, it's like people are driving every which way. And I needed to get home to make sure the titles were right and make sure it was a well-written story. And I had so many rules. We were not allowed to take a friend. We were not allowed to use Wikipedia as a source. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, so you had to know an artist's Honestly, like their complete life discography. So my first assignment for the Tribune was Keith Urban. I remember my my editor at the time calling me at 3 a.m. after I'd filed the story and I had said that Nicole Kidman was there. And he's like, you have to be 150% sure it was her. I'm like, I am positive. She walked yeah. right by me. She's yeah. beautiful. She's like a porcelain doll. Yeah, you don't miss you her. You don't miss her. And he's like, because if we print this, and she wasn't there, you know, we're going to have to run a clarification. And I'm like, I know we don't know each other. And this is my first assignment, but you have to trust me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that assignment was maybe like 300 words. How hard can it be? But just getting the titles right. Is this part of the song title in parentheses? Red carpets are a special kind of experience. Talk about the sort of physicality of it, the sort of oral experience in terms of noise, this sort of chaos. Red carpets are what I thought would be like the pinnacle of my career. Like if I, if I could ever get invited and credentialed for a red carpet, like I would have made it. So the first one I went to, probably for the CMA Awards in Vegas, had done so much research on the people yeah. that I thought I was going to talk to at the time. Tim McGraw, Faith Hill, Keith Urban, yeah. Garth Brooks, all these people. I had done so much homework. And first of all, you are standing. I'm not kidding. Like your shoulders are touching the shoulders of the person next to you. They give you no room. It's brutal. And they put all the print slash digital journalists at the end. And then it's hot. You have to get there really, really early. So if the carpet opens at four o'clock, you have to be there at three and you're dressed up. And, you know, in Vegas for the ACM awards, it could be 110 degrees. There's only so much, you know, your compressed powder can do. Yeah. And then you find out that that the big artists aren't coming. That was at the Telluride Film Festival. It was the U2 3D movie. 
I basically just showed up to talk to Bono for a second, not gonna front. And Jerry Panicoli was right next to me. And the dude, this is like Entertainment Tonight or one of those shows, like uber tan, Italian looking dude, started in the Philadelphia market. That's why I know him because I grew up watching him. And he's huge. He's like 6'4". And he's thick. He's just a big, handsome, really handsome guy. But look, is just having none of me. You know, he is just yeah. fully physically boxing me out. And like you, I was like, well, I mean, I think they're going to want to talk to the MTV guy, right? Like, so I'm not going to arm wrestle with him. And they found me. But afterwards, he's like, sorry, man. These red carpets are really tough, aren't they? And I was like, wait a second. You nearly assaulted me and that's your line. But, you know, no harm, no foul. Frenemies, right? That makes a lot of sense. You see the same ladies and gentlemen pretty regularly, right? You must develop relationships with your peers. It's hard because they are your friends, but they are also at that moment in time competitors. I did have one, it was in Las Vegas. And again, by this point, I'd been doing it for 10 years. I had the lowest of low expectations. I mean, I kind of knew the drill. Say it's like 10 minutes until the show is going to broadcast live. You know that anybody entering the red carpet at that point is certainly not going to stop and talk to the print journalist. You take your shoes off, take your earrings off, kind of like pack up all your shit. F this, let's just go <laughs> into the press room and, and do what we do there. There's this big commotion at the other end of the red carpet. And I'm like, oh, great. Some artist is like late rushing into the show. Now we have to get out of their way. And it was Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. I'm literally barefoot, no earrings, I mean, I have gum in my mouth. Like, I, I don't yeah. have my recorder on. I remember anymore. the cameras were off. It was time to go. They're being friendly. You know, they're waving to everybody and they walk past me. And then Tim McGraw, I have no idea till the day I die. I have no idea why he did this. He stopped, turned around, gave me a big hug and said, it's so great to see you. And then continued walking in. And I was like, did that, did that just happen? Did I dream? Like, wake me up, right? Part of the journey through that world includes our time together at Viacom. My memory of you is can-do and thoughtful and upbeat. What was your journey there? When did you walk in the door? What were some of those first assignments? It was a good run. It was 15 years. Chet Flippo, actually, from Rolling yeah. Stone, was my editor then. Incredible. Such a famous music journalist is telling me, you know, to change the sentence and make that my lead and all these great things. Those assignments were sporadic. Because I'm in Chicago at least at the time, it was the country's biggest country music market in terms of uh, hard right, copy right. music sales and shows. The assignments just became less and less sporadic until they asked me to make it a more regular thing. I think I was doing like three stories a week and then it changed to a story a day. Yeah, The job was like a snowball, you know, it just yeah. kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I loved every minute of it until... They brought in a different kind of manager who didn't have a journalism background and wasn't an editor. And we just had different definitions of what editorial meant. Sure. So I resigned. It'll be a, a year ago in a couple of weeks. Did you immediately resolve to write a book? I'd started this book maybe three years ago because, as you know, when you're doing this job of being a music journalist, you are on an assignment and that's what you turn in. But other stuff happens that you're not putting into your story. So I always sure. thought, I want to tell the stories that didn't make it into my stories. Oh my God, we're having dinner with Kid Rock. So yeah. that's the kind of story that had no home. You know, like I, I couldn't yeah. 
write about that for CMT because it ended up being like a very R-rated kind of night. Debauched. But But you get enough of those and you stack up those pages. And I'm like, this is a book. You know, you just keep going and going. And then I'm like, I don't know, I maybe had... 13,000 words. And I was like, I wrote a book. (laughs) And then then I'm like, oh, it's like a booklet. It's not really a book. So then, you know, you just have to keep going and keep remembering. So once I got to around 40,000 words, I, I just did it. You write in the book about your collection of like great ephemera, like outfits and t-shirts and boots. Can you give us just like a told you this would be a left turn. Give us a teeny audio tour, like a visual audio tour of like the best favorite things in the closet. I'll give you my top three. Before Jason Aldean was famous, he self-produced a CD just called Jason Aldean. And like his uncles are his musicians. And, you know, he has a long list of acknowledgements in the CD. I was interviewing Luke Bryan and we were like on a group text and they were like, can you believe this? somebody found this CD of Jason's and it's on eBay. And, you know, it was listed at like $200 and they were like, oh my God, that would be so funny if we bought it. And I bought it. I was like, who would not buy that? And I'm not even a rich celebrity. So I showed it to Jason after I bought it. And he was like, I told my dad to burn all those. (laughs) (laughs) Like he used to literally sell them at the back of a karaoke show at a off a card table. So that, that tops the list. Miranda Lambert had a song called Vice and she gets in a car accident. And as she's walking out of the car accident, she's wearing these gorgeous vintage boots. So I bought those. Ah. But my, my very favorite thing is I had a chance to interview Brooks and Dunn when they were being inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. And I was like, I need to wear something really special. And I didn't want to just wear like a Brooks and Dunn t-shirt. So I found their first tour t-shirt, but it was like, I'm like a size four and it was a triple XL. So I think I paid a hundred dollars for it because it was, you know, rare, one of a kind. Sure. And then I took it to a tailor and I was like, you need to take this in because it it won't fit under. I always wear blazers and I'm like, it won't fit under my blazer. I wore it to the interview. And before we even introduced ourselves, started chatting, Ronnie Dunn was like, that's my wife's favorite shirt. She used to ah. sleep in it when we first, you know, started getting the big, big paychecks. And he's like, can I buy it off you? And I said, no, I'm like, I have like $250 into this t-shirt. You're not going to buy it. And he's like, I'll pay you double. <laughs> Talk to me about your interest in the bridge as a musician and a songwriter and a music fan. That's super interesting. Tell people what the bridge is and tell us more about that interest of yours. A typical song is verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus. And then in a proper country song, the bridge changes everything. It takes you from what you thought you were listening to, to that eureka moment where you're like, holy shit, I get it now. So my best example of that is a Randy Travis song called Three Wooden Crosses. And it's about a farmer and a teacher and a hooker and a preacher They're on a bus going to Mexico and they get in a car accident. He gets to the point of the chorus where he's talking about there's three wooden crosses on the right side of the road. Why there's not four of them, Mm. we won't ever know. And then when you get to the 
bridge, he says, that's the story that the preacher told last Sunday. Mm. Do you ever have people cry on your podcast? I can't believe I'm, this is so embarrassing. Every week. It's all good. I'm grateful. So you get to the bridge and he says, that's the, about the three wooden crosses. He says, that's the story that our preacher told last Sunday. As he held the bloodstained Bible in his hands. Mm. And then you mm. realize that um, he says, that's the story that my mom told. So then you realize his mom was the hooker. Right? Yeah. I mean, isn't that just, doesn't that blow your mind? She's the yeah. only one that lived. Yeah. And then she turned her life around and gave birth. And now she held the Bible that the preacher had given her in the car accident. And she gave it to her son who became a preacher. Yeah. There can be no better bridge. As storytelling goes first, right? It's a surprise ending. Get MTV News. One of the things we always talked about was stakes, right? What's at stake in this story? And in this story. Right everything is at stake. And it's also got the subtext of morality and values and karmic justice or something. So that, that is special, but also most people don't know what a bridge is and certainly don't listen to them. I think of them as the times when I have to pull my car over to the side of the road and be like, Oh my God, the preacher was the hooker's son. Yeah. There's so many good ones in country music. I could like talk for hours about all the best bridges. I've increasingly come to think of songs and podcasts and stories to some degree as sermons. And I'm not a religious person. I'm spiritual, but I don't go to church. But, you know, the middle eight, the bridge, is usually where the worm turns, where it gets more gravitas, where musically it actually elevates. Like the idea is you're taken out of the experience so that when you come back to the experience, it's completely transformed. And it's magic. To me, a story song should have a beginning and a middle and an end. And so to me, the bridge takes you to the ending of that story. Most of the things that I'm proudest of, I don't know what the right word is, tactic of beginning is morning, my middle is afternoon, my end is evening. I've done that six times. You know, like what happened today? And where did it turn to our previous point, right? That where does the bridge take us? Like what happened that made it matter? And so often it's in the bridge. I love it. Sorry, I could do bridges with you all day, Allison. Somebody should do like a greatest hits with the greatest bridges album. What has surprised you most in your 15 plus years in covering Nashville and, and, and Nashville stars? Everyone is so nice. Really, with a few rare exceptions, I was welcomed with open arms. I knew nobody with a 615 area code. And at the end of 2007, I put Luke Bryan's debut album on my Chicago Tribune top albums of the year list. And he called me and he's like, Allison, it's Luke Bryan. And and like, no one can imitate that. I I knew for sure it was him. And he called to thank me and he continued to call and thank me or ask me something or run something by me over the years. And, And I thought if the security guard at CMT is this nice and Luke Bryan is this nice, this is a place that I want to make my living. I grew up on Loader. I grew up in Cameron Crowe. I grew up reading the Rolling Stone. This is why I'm here. Even the Rolling Stone interviews, don't, they almost feel like a parody of themselves. They still deliver on more insight than a 500-word blog post that comps information from elsewhere. How do you think about purpose in work and life? How do they relate? How do you try and stay integrated and balanced? You know, Be a good mom, be a good partner, take care of yourself, 
do purposeful work. How do you think about that? How have you managed that over the last 25, 20 years? You know, you use the word balanced and I guess, you know, that's always my purpose. When I wake up in the morning, I think, oh, I get to talk to so-and-so today or my daughter's going to stop by after her night shift at the hospital. Like the balance of work I love and my family that I love and my friends and my neighbors. I also have this motto tattooed on my wrist and it's the first thing that I see every morning. I'm not a church goer, like you said, but my kids went to a Christian camp in the summer when they were little and they came home and the camp motto was I'm third. And I was like, what does that mean? And they said, God's first, others are second and I'm third. So, right. You put yourself last. It's like the ultimate selflessness and I was like, oh, I want that T-shirt. And my kids were like, you can't wear the T-shirt because you didn't go to camp. And I'm like, then I'm going to tattoo it on my wrist. <laughs> so I see it every morning and that's my purpose. My closet over here is loaded with books. So I'm thrilled to place yours up alongside Bruce Springsteen's and, and David Burns and so forth. And uh, I'm honored that you'd even put me on a shelf with them. Of course. You know, the, the minute I got my first assignment from CMT, and found out that I was going to be working alongside Chet Flippo. Yeah. I almost died. He'd written a lot of books. He toured with Rolling, the Rolling Stones and he wrote about what that experience was like. And then he wrote a couple autobios for country singers. Just knowing that I was going to be guided by such greatness got me thinking like, I bet a book will come out of this. Because I was never the kind of person who was like, I'm going to write a book. It was yeah. just that when you have all these funny stories in your head. You can't not share them. The through line of what I'm writing is music's capacity, both as a audience member and a creator and performer has been a coping mechanism, a healing mechanism, and a mechanism to build my future in real time. It's potent stuff, right? So with that, what do you think happened a minute ago when we were talking about bridges and you got choked up? What did that touch in you? Well, first of all, I'm a huge crier. And it's always just the bridge that gets me because that's when you learn what you didn't see coming. Mm. And usually, because it's country music, it's a very emotional thing. It's about drinking or alcoholism or abuse, so much about abuse. And those are all heavy topics. And so... yeah a bus crash in Mexico that's that's bound to get you to feel something, you're not only getting to the gist of the story when you finally hear the bridge, but you're feeling the full weight of the emotion. I have one more example. This Cody Johnson song that I said should be the number one song. It should break all the records for this year about, you know, don't put off stuff. So the first verse is about your dad wants to go fishing, but you have too much going on to bait and cast a line. Your girlfriend wants you to propose, but you'll do that somewhere down the road. And there's a old Chevy sitting in the garage that your grandpa wants to fix, but you're not going to make time for it. And in the bridge, he talks about, you need to do all those things because man, you never know. So you think that the song is about his dad's going to die. His girlfriend's going to walk away. His grandpa's going to die. But in the video, spoiler alert, he dies. Mm-hmm. So you can't put off doing stuff with people that you love yeah, because you might die. Like, it's just, 
I mean, you have to watch the video. Till You Can't, Cody Johnson, watch it on YouTube. And when you get to the bridge and you see the mom taking the phone call saying, that can't be right. I just talked to him. So my parents divorced too. And we had a Magnavox with headphones like the one I'm wearing. What started is a casual consumption of AM radio became like sitting in front of the Magnavox with headphones whenever there was discord at home and there was plenty of discord. So often music connects me with that experience. And so it can be loaded with emotional context. It has nothing to do with the song, but is connected to the emotion of the song or the melancholy of the song. And a lot of the stuff I like to listen to. And to your point, most of the dramatic storytelling in music across time and genre tends to connect to that sort of substance and meaning. Yes, there's the party song, right? But typically the songs are about loss. I wonder if that has any resonance with your connection to music. I I would have no reason to know that your parents divorced, except you mentioned it at the beginning of the conversation. Do you experience music on that deeper psychological level? Or is it truly just like, that's a great story and that was a great bridge? Yes, I connect to it personally on a deeper level. My father was abusive. My mom, she got rid of him right when she needed to. But Mm. I think that's why I gravitate towards sad songs. Yeah. And why when I found country music, I was like, oh my God, this is about real life. And I interviewed Brad Paisley one time and we were talking about other genres. And he was saying the cool thing about pop music is that it's so ambiguous. For one person, it might mean one thing. For another person, it might be another thing. But country music is only about this story that you're telling. Yeah. So he was, you know, putting pop up on kind of a pedestal for its ambiguity. And I'm like, I don't like it. I don't know much about country. I know a lot more than I used to, but it does typically deal and always has with difficult topics. It's a place that reflects the real world, right? In a way that pop is an escape. I'm so grateful you shared that with me because usually there's some lever, right? A connection between things that we're dramatically connected to or moved to be a part of yeah. and, and something else. And for me, music was a place to go when the house was rumbling because my parents were arguing. Most of us have had some things happen. Few of us talk about them, but once we talk about them, they have less power. And they also help you to know that misery loves company and you're not alone. You know, Penny Chesney has a fantastic song called That's Why I'm Here. And my dad was an alcoholic and it's all about his wife pushing him to go to AA meetings. And he's like, I've been there and that's why I'm here. And I was like, God. So as an adult, I was like, God, that would have been like what it would have been like for my dad had he chosen to sober up. But then even, you know, as my adult life progressed in the last 20 years to having kids, and then I had two siblings die in the past five years. Mm. And when my brother John died, he was the oldest. So he's 18 years older than me. Definitely the family, the patriarch, you know, especially without a father figure. And I swear to God, it is like, Tim McGraw knew I needed it. He released a song. He didn't even release it. It was a deep cut. It's called Book of John. And it's not religious in any way. It's about finding the scrapbook of the family patriarch named John. That was my brother's name. And how amazing it is to flip through the pages and see. You have to listen to it. Otherwise, I'm just going to cry again. (laughs) So I promise I will. I'm so glad we pushed a little further because I just think it's so useful to show people that it's okay to 
share our misery and have company and joy and release and levity and connection and all the other magical, wonderful, perfectly essential components of music. I really think music, music can save your life. Fred Rogers called the space between the viewer and the TV set sacred ground. It was, as an ordained Presbyterian minister, a space where something transformational could happen between the viewer and him. Lately, I've been trying to make a little of that same space in my own life, somewhere between, say, me and my wife, or me and whomever I'm present with. Austrian neurologist, psychologist, and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl speaks to that sacred opening. Between stimulus and response, he says, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies growth and freedom. It's not easy. I'm easily distracted by my own insecurities and worries, so it's a practice. But something different happens when I create enough safety to be fully in the space between, to get curious and notice what's happening with my own innate spidey sense. When Allison and I found ourselves deep in conversation about the magic of the bridge, that part of the song that comes after the second chorus and takes you on an eight-measure mini-epic somewhere completely new from where the song had been before, then returns you to the final verse, Transform. I felt something unsettled or unsaid. And so I asked. And when Allison got truly vulnerable, she revealed why her connection to country music is so deeply personal to her and so profoundly universal for all of us. Music can save your life. It is, as Fred Rogers said, one art we all have inside. Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborsshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Friends.